all live happily ever after. One more story, Daddy, please. Okay, buddy, one more story. But then it's lights out. He's not asleep yet. No, he's not, honey. We already did the bears and the magic school bus. Would you like to trade places? Well, I've had two glasses of wine, and I'm not saying I'm going to. But we do have those beads. Beads. Okay, okay, don't, don't fall asleep. Just make up something really boring, like science-y or something. Hmm. Okay, I, th I think I have an idea. I'll, I'll be right out. Okay, buddy, Mommy just gave me an idea for a really good story, so get comfortable. Okay. It's called Vehicle Emissions. So, Daddy drives a Toyota Corolla. Now, because it's a gas car, its fuel efficiency is only about 30%. So, the other 70% of all the gas Daddy buys just goes right up into the atmosphere. That's not very good. Lay back down. Don't be springing up. It's bedtime. So that stuff that comes out of cars is called vehicle emissions, and they make our climate warmer, which can be concerning because if our climate rises above 1.5 degrees Celsius, it could affect the polar ice caps. What's going to happen to the polar bears? That's not... I, I told you not to sit up like that. It's not so bad. There will be some flooding, maybe a few fires. Fires? Yeah, you know, tsunamis and stuff. Some lowland countries might submerge into the ocean. Don't worry, it'll take years and years, at least until your daddy's age, okay? We'll all live happily ever after. And that's my story. Now, good night. Daddy, I'm scared the tsunami's gonna get me. Can I sleep in your room tonight? No, your mother's sick. She's fine, though. Uh, just needs daddy's help to make sure she can sleep really well. Good night, buddy. I'm turning on the white noise machine. Sweet dreams, bud. Close your eyes. Good night. Jeez, I guess we're all fucked. Welcome back to another episode of We Are All Fucked. And if there's one thing you do before the world explodes, please subscribe. If you give us a five-star rating, Tejas will personally come to your house and make love to you. Oh my god, he's so good at it. I he's hear. So good. I've heard. He's really gonna pay attention you to your feet, are... too. He's you long. Know? He's like, kind of, he's kind of looks like a ripe banana or something. Tall, he's dark, and handsome. You. That is, you guys are pushing it too much. His beard is well-trimmed. It actually is. So. I did shave. And, and he's smart, you know, he's non-threatening. I'm, I'm not that non-threatening. Yeah, let's hold on now. <laughs> let him into your house and let him destroy you in a gentle way. <laughs> I'll be nice to you. Ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary, dewy, beautiful gender variances, thank you so much. If your internet is broken, it's because we have so many podcast downloads. <laughs> we just reached 100 unique downloads in 46 cities and 5 countries. We're at 110, actually. 111, baby. Oh! Yeah, I check it even more than you, you <laughs> fucking loser. Uh, I'm your host, Ben Yanetti, along with our resident scientist slash data analyst, Tejas Doshi, and my good friend, Michael Wyatt Cox. Mike, do you want me to introduce you in a, a new way or s say something else about you? Something else insulting besides wh what you just said? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, lay it on me. Insult you like insults, right? Yeah, my tongue's <laughs> out. sticking his tongue out. What a whore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm vulgar today. What a whore. You sound like uh, that guy from Sopranos. 
Which one? Uh, the guy that says hooer all the time. Which one? The one that's all about the hooers. Oh, he also right. Plays the one that who's banging Tony's wig. sister. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Hooers. Yeah. <laughs> he needs a gun okay. put to his head. Okay. Thank you for that. To orgasm. So today we're talking about electrification. It means using a smarter, less dangerous, and cheaper way to get our energy. I'm actually a buzz about this topic. I'm like full of electricity about it. It's pretty exciting. Also, Tejas is really into electrification. Like it's his it's his shit. It's his main shit. And I don't know if you guys remember last episode when he was talking about watermelons and getting a little into it. Yeah, but, uh... the skin. <laughs> I was. If you open the skin and see how sick. Like there's all these sexualities. If you're like a produce asexual. Yeah, if, just you like, if you like getting corned or zucchini or whatever. So yeah, Tejas and watermelons, he's a little into it, and it's the same thing with electrification. You it can is. cut a hole in a cantaloupe. Well, yeah. I don't like cantaloupes that much. Is that the reason? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but you are super into electrification, right? Yes, totally. The three major categories of energy or electricity generation are fossil fuels, which include coal, natural gas, and petroleum, nuclear energy, and renewable energy sources. And there's also one more. It's Ben after taco night. Yeah, or any number of normal foods <laughs> yeah. that that will destroy your bathroom or especially like the bathroom of wherever I'm auditioning or like somebody that oh, I'm shooting toilet, an interview at. The toilet at an audition studio. I was in there the other day just unloading and I thought about how it might be the saddest toilet on earth. Like, Dude, for real. It's... Everybody's so everybody's trying not to look like they're pooping or trying not to look like they're fixing their hair. <laughs> <laughs> trying not to look like they don't know what to do with their wet hands because the fucking paper towels are gone a long time ago. Yeah. I've peed on myself and had to just dry it in one of those hand dryer things. Like it's it's a rough <laughs> scene at the audition studio, man. It's, <laughs> everyone's in hell there, just so you know. Wow. Mike's a pee freak. That's true. Most electricity is generated with steam turbines using fossil fuels. Can, we, can you break this down for me, Tejas? So uh, most electricity is generated with steam turbines. Fossil fuels are burned, and basically when they're burned, they, uh, they transfer their energy in the form of heat to water. So water boils and converts into steam. And this steam now has all this energy, and the steam hits the turbine and makes the turbine blades move which produces electric power. And you can brew tea in that as well, no? Yeah, the waste product could be tea. Mm. Nuclear energy also works on the same principle where a nuclear reaction produces heat and that heat is transferred uh, into the water, which boils the water and runs a steam turbine. Biomass energy works the same way. Geothermal is when you take uh, the actual heat out from the interior of the earth. Like from a volcano? from a volcano um, or like magma pockets, you can mm. take that heat generated by the core of the earth and use that to uh, drive a steam turbine. And solar thermal energy is where you actually use the sun to boil water and then use that as steam. Magma pockets. That's like Hot Pockets' new product. Magma <laughs> pockets. Hey, it's definitely how it feels in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, Hot Pockets are really hot, but Yeah, they're yeah. terrible. Yeah, or freezing. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a Jim Gaffigan joke. It's like we. Uh, I would like the hot pocket. It's like, would you prefer that frozen or boiling? <laughs> <laughs> There's no middle ground. 
This is from AAA Automotive. So they're like a, a, you know, they're a neutral party. They don't sell cars. They don't sell electric or gas burning cars. They're a neutral party. They just fix cars. So this is from AAA. They say, sadly, today's gasoline engines are only around 30 to 35% efficient, which means roughly 65 cents out of every dollar you spend on gas goes to waste. Today, the most efficient vehicles typically also have the highest EPA-estimated fuel economy ratings in their class. So the ones that are the most efficient, where you're getting the most bang for your buck, are also the ones that are the best for the planet. To quote Tejas, buying a gas car in the 21st century is like buying a horse in the 20th century. It's that it's moving that quickly towards obsolescence. Yeah, in terms of like uh, reliability and stuff, because I was actually looking at purchasing a car recently um, with the electrics, like talking to Tejas about it, like because they don't have like a fucking carburetor and stuff and all that other jazz. There's no tailpipe like there's a lot less things that can break down with it. So it's just generally not only is it better, always better fuel economy, but it's more reliable, too. It's just a much simpler, cleaner electrical design compared to a gas car where you need like all this engine, then you need a carburetor or a fuel injector, and then you need to put some fluid in it to keep it clean. And then you have to exhaust all this uh, explosion that has happened in your car, you know, with the combustion. And you have to clean this uh, this exhaust that is coming out of your car to make sure you uh, satisfy the EPA standards, which they lie about too. We'll talk about that. But so you can see how complicated it can get. You know, you have a problem and then you have to fix this problem. So you build more systems on top of that. Mm. So it's like going to the doctor in the US. It's like (laughs) (laughs) my cholesterol is low. It's like, well, here's a drug for your cholesterol and here's a drug that'll help with your liver from that drug. And here's one for your kidneys that'll help with the liver (laughs) drug. And I'm wearing my ADHD shirt today. And like, dude. I had, uh, they put me on the Adderall and then that gave me depression. So then they put me on the Wellbutrin and then that gave me like uh, night terror. So then they put me on a different kind of Adderall to fix that. Like it was, it's Right. Just... They just give you like medicine basically to fix the issue. Like it's a bandit solution. Mm-hmm. As I bandits said. Bandits on bandits. Bandits on bandits. It's like, oh, well, let's not fix the root cause of the problem. Let's just give you stuff. It's the way I see it. All the manuf- all the car manufacturing companies, at least back in the day, uh, even now for the most part, have contempt for you, <laughs> where they want to like like give you stuff that will purposefully break down, so that you have to come uh, to them, so that you can have to buy more stuff. You I know? think a lot of our products are like that. Like right, even right, the right. dandruff shampoo kind of, of course, eventually yeah, gives yeah. you dandruff. A company yeah. can't survive if it doesn't keep generating demand. Right, right. So, like, my, I'm using right now a MacBook that's like 11 years old because back then they had interchangeable parts. So I just switched right. out an SSD and some new RAM, yep. and I'm still using this thing yeah. so long later. Yeah, Apple was actually caught like slowing phones down purposefully for their old phones. Yeah, uh, mine does. They it. had to actually pay fines for that. Oh, good. They got them with some fines. Yeah, I'm sure they I paid a lot of how money. How much laughter they stifled when they were fined? They're like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, sure, we'll pay it. <laughs> Like laughing into their turtlenecks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so car companies pretty much have the same monopoly too, where yeah. where there is no new technology to replace it. So they're like, well, you have to buy this. And also, especially in America, everything is so far away. You can't really like get uh, 
you need a car in this country if you live like don't live in new york city for example Dude, i just moved to out further in queens i'm dying here i need, I need a car and i'm just like three more subway stops away from you guys now right so right it sucks and have you considered a pogo stick i have one but it goes right up my ass <laughs> <laughs> those are more expensive uh, i yeah. like the new scooters like which are yeah. which are trying to be they're pretty cool those are cool uh, but most of the u.s still ha- needs like a, a car of some sort to move yeah. from place a to place b and as things are we can't afford to put any more vehicle emissions into the atmosphere that's how far things have gone we really can't afford to put any more the, of that carbon monoxide carbon dioxide are you sure yeah yeah 100 percent sure if anything we need to start taking carbon out of the atmosphere we are at that point not only do we have to not put more we have to come up with technologies to take stuff out from the atmosphere so so i yeah for for me i'm not sure because i'm not an expert but our expert guest that we're about to hear from says very clearly we're sure yeah, she's pretty concerned, guys. We need to do something about this because it's going to start cutting into our power and our survival and our immigration and every just every part of our lives. As things are, we can't afford to put any more vehicle emissions into the atmosphere, but we are still burning fossil fuels for 85% of our energy production. So what do we do? But first, how will we breathe? The following pollution health stats are pretty depressing, so I'm going to give you a trauma star... For surviving them at the end. Otherwise, skip ahead a few minutes to our guest interview. Air pollution leads to 17,900 U.S. deaths per year. Uh, I found that statistic in the Washington Post. But they're just reporting on a study. It's not their study, so. Right, right. You want to elaborate on that? It's a bunch of nerds, it looks like. Someone named Nina. <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't, actually. I don't want to talk about the study. It looks boring. It's a bunch of paragraphs of words. There's some charts here. I mean, it seems pretty legit. Here's some statistics that I got from the South Coast Air Quality Management District. Um, They're a California pollution monitoring government service. I don't think they're out there making money off this stuff. They're just putting basic safety parameters in place. In 1989, you know, we're pretty far away from there now, but in 1989... Uh, Dr. Jane Hall of Cal State Fullerton found that meeting federal clean, clean air standards for ozone and fine particulates in the South Coast region would provide $9.4 billion in health-related benefits each year. study found that 98% of the four-county basin's population of 13 million is exposed to unhealthful air, with children especially vulnerable. In addition, 1,600 people in that district die prematurely as a result of exposure to air pollution. So L.A., these counties that we're talking about in California, the basin it's called, um, that have so much traffic nearby. Everybody's seen the L.A. traffic. You've seen the dark smog as you fly into L.A. That didn't used to be there. That wasn't there before gas-burning vehicles. That's all from our driving. And it turns out that people are getting sick around there. In 1991, a follow-up study showed that minorities as a whole were exposed more to poor air quality since they tended to live in more polluted air areas where housing is affordable. 
Results of the study suggest a relationship between long-term exposure to air pollution and the development of specific chronic diseases such as asthma and lung lesions and inflammation, a bunch of stuff. Residents living in areas which exceeded state and federal standards for suspended particulates on 42 days or more per year had a higher risk of respiratory diseases, including a 33% greater bronchitis risk and 74% greater asthma risk. In addition, this is a really scary one, guys. Women living in those high particulate areas had a 37% higher risk of developing some form of cancer. Yeah. So this is just one area that has a lot of cars. I mean, if you're finding almost 40% higher risk of cancer in women, you're finding 33% greater bronchitis risk, 74% greater asthma risk where these cars are nearby. This is not so much a patting yourself on the back for... uh, being charitable to the planet issue. It's just a basic human health issue for yourself and your neighbors. Whether you pat yourself on the back is up to you. If you want to feel smug, go feel smug. I'm I'm patting myself right now. Yeah, Ben's got his fucking reusable cup. He's got a real smug look about him. Mm. He does have a reusable cup. Feels nice. Yeah, that's a scary statistic. Um, yeah. There's like so many studies that like show relation uh, to cancer from just like particulate emissions from cars and trucks and and any kind of vehicle emissions all right we'll take a quick break and come back with some more dark shit 0.5 percent of our vehicle use on the planet is electric yeah somewhere that's there. it yeah 0.5 percent yeah, so very, everybody's very burning extremely inefficient fuel, and the number's increasing all the time as the population increases and as new countries achieve more wealth and their people want to buy cars. Mm. So it's getting worse and worse and worse. And also, a lot of these studies are from the 80s and 90s, and things are definitely getting worse since then. They're, get, they're getting exponentially worse. Oh, the population was significantly lower in the 80s, and the po- this problem was already bad. The population has more than doubled, I guess, now, and way more cars are on the road now than before. Fine particulate pollution, even at low levels below the federal health standard, can shorten lifespans by two years, according to a 16-year study by Harvard University researchers. In a study of 8,111 residents of six U.S. cities, particle pollution was strongly associated with excess deaths from lung cancer and heart disease, even when other lifestyle risks such as cigarette smoking were factored out. Wow. And this is Harvard, folks. It's a Harvard study. Yeah. Done over 16 years with over 8,000 people, and people are dying. Yeah, in India, uh, Delhi is the air quality in Delhi is supposed to be just completely. You you shouldn't be in Delhi. Uh, it's the air quality is so bad. It's like five times or six times the the standard it should be. So if you just live in Delhi, it's like smoking six or seven cigarettes a day. Damn, man. And it's just as bad. And it's not that bad in Mumbai, where I'm from, but it's still pretty bad in Mumbai. When I landed in Mumbai, the last time I was there, the air quality index was three times more than the uh, the required air quality index. And like it's said at the airport, air quality, extremely bad. Wow. You know, this whole issue reminds me of smoking cigarettes because it's it's about burning something. And uh, it's extremely bad for your health. And, and you look cool doing it. It's really, yeah, you look cool doing it. That just is like, true. <laughs> it's sold by a camel. Mm-hmm. 
and um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so by did you lose the analogy? Yeah, I did. <laughs> it took me a while to uh, to get that. Yeah. It's it's not necessary, and it's more expensive, and it's dangerous for our health. So start to think of it that way. Start to think of fossil fuel burning cars as kind of like smoking cigarettes. Right. They do have like filters in cars uh, where they like take out most of the particulate matter and the bad stuff. But it's still not good enough. There's I mean, there's cigarettes, no way there's it. filters and cigarettes too. Exactly, that's the best analogy. Yeah, this is. And true. also, there, we have a lot of uh, crossover of the gases that come out oh, from yeah. burning gasoline and burning cigarettes, like carbon monoxide. Yeah, 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 yikes, yikes. yeah. It's basically smoking a cigarette but sitting on it. You know, one thing that I was surprised to find is that people who are athletes are actually in more danger of air pollution because they are breathing harder and for longer and a lot of right, times right. outdoors. Uh, right. A study of 10 adult men exposed to 0.12 ppm ozone for 6.6 hours, including five hours of moderate exercise, found that lung function decreased and respiratory systems, coughing and breathing discomfort, increased over the more than six hours of exposure. So like... Can you break that down in a non-boring science? Uh, I know, right? I, I love how science is like, if you 12 take 0. 0.12 PPM. and 6.6 hours. And, yeah, man. It's, so what's the long and short of this, basically? That It's just that uh, exercising in polluted areas will damage your lungs. It's Even actually, more so because you're taking all these big breaths. So, yeah. you know, when you see people like going on the FDR and running, yeah. that's a terrible idea. Where you should we basically, run? If I was to decide, although to I, I looked up the 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 air around here says it's pretty good. It, says it is. The it air is. In it is. is, it good. is. Don't get me wrong. New York City has like really good air quality, relatively speaking. Uh, but but in general, running around yeah, outside. general general running around the highway or like somewhere uh-huh. where you have like a mass influx of cars mm-hmm. is not a good idea. I mean, it's common yeah, that's sense. a really good point. Like if you're gonna run, you might want to not do it along yeah. a road. I mean, there's yeah. it's like running next to a bunch of smokers. Right, right, yeah, right. I, right, I right. do that all the time, so and I smell it. some nasty smells too out here in Flushing Queens. Why don't you go run in the graveyard? It's nice there. Yeah, yeah you should yeah, run in the graveyard. The only thing is I, I have no landmarks to know how far I'm running. So anyway. Yeah, you're like that old guy's grave, that guy's grave. Those are, these are landmarks. <laughs> Air pollution from our vehicles causes asthma, bronchitis, cancer, lung damage. It's bad uh, particularly for women. It's bad particularly for athletes and for children. Yeah, and uh, the effects are long term. So you don't see it like tomorrow. It takes a while for the effects to kick in, so you're paying the long-term price for it. The emissions from the tailpipe of a gas or diesel burning vehicle will kill a human very quickly. Many people have died of accidental carbon monoxide poisoning. Others have done it deliberately, such as Tom Smikowski from Office Space. By the way, not to get all dramatic, but the National Suicide Hotline number is 800 273 8255. That's 800 273 8255. And by the way, I've also heard that most suicidal impulses don't last longer than 90 minutes. So, you know, if you're thinking about it, give it 90 minutes. They really are judgment free on the line. It's just a really nice someone to talk to. If you ever want to reach out, it really is a good number to call and talk to them. I call them so often and they are still patient with me. (laughs) They're like, Ben, is this Ben? Is that why you called me yesterday, dude? Still not feeling better, huh, Ben? (laughs) You know, Ben, there's other hotlines. Ben, have you considered getting a day job? There's also Miss Cleo. She can do your fortune or something. (laughs) I watched this documentary called Who Killed the Electric Car? 
and it was really interesting. I, I kind of thought that Tesla invented the electric car. I thought that there wasn't like a real electric option before Tesla did it, but that's not true at all because based on the statistics we were just talking about, these scary health statistics, such as that in 1989, a study found that one in four 15 to 25-year-olds in Los Angeles had severe lung lesions or asthma. Immediately, the government said, okay, fossil fuel vehicle companies, automakers, you're going to have to start offering an electric or emission-free alternative to keep selling gas-powered cars. So they made this mandate, and the the automakers pushed back really, really hard against it. They actually made a fake consumer group to lobby for them, and they had people show up to these protests and stuff, and they had some corporate sponsors. None of the people who were doing it knew that, that it was a lobbying group created by the automakers. So they faked their way into a compromise with the EPA where they said they were going to start using hydrogen fuel cells and clean things up before that technology was proven. Long story short, they got away with doing away with the mandate. And and so uh, the automakers were allowed to keep making the gas-powered cars, and they actually destroyed every single model of the- yeah, they made this thing called the EV1, the first electric car, and it looks kind of like an old Saturn or something. Like it's kind of cool. A lot of celebs and stuff were buying them. And Tom uh, Hanks, Mel Gibson. Yeah, and I was reading about how GM tried to have them all destroyed in 2003, and Francis Ford Coppola, the Godfather guy, actually hid his EV1 so he could keep it because he loved it so much. So there's very few of them. There's a bunch, uh, a couple in museums and stuff, and Coppola has one too. So it's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. You can also see uh, Tom Hanks. He went on, in 1998, that's 23 years ago, he went on David Letterman to talk about his GM, General Motors, EV1 car and how great it was and how silent it was and how fast it was and how you didn't have to, it was 60 cents a gallon for the equivalent of gas, so much cheaper. And Dave Letterman is like, uh, wow, Tom, you really like this car, huh? And he's like, I'm saving America, Dave. I'm saving America. And, and... You know, I, I I didn't realize that. I thought Elon Musk was the one doing that. I didn't know that Tom Hanks was already trying to save us 23 years ago. He was like, you are a child's plaything. Anyone? Woody? <laughs> yeah, Toy Story. Dude, honestly, nice. if you don't like Tom Hanks, I can't help you. Um, here's a crazy statistic. Three billion people, 40% of the world does not have access to cooking fuels. They burn wood or cow dung, and in some cases, plastic to cook, extremely dangerous for indoor air pollution and CO2 emissions. So that was a lot of dark stuff. It's it's tough to read it all. And, you know, seeing all that, hearing it, it made me realize that maybe Tejas isn't such a bad supervillain after all. And we have the supervillain meter on the pod, and he's gone from Molten Man to Doc Ock to a Sith Lord. And I thought maybe we should reset the meter, bring him all the way back down to the lowest form of villain. We're going to put him at the Noid. If you don't know the Noid, he was Domino's mascot, and he was responsible for all your pizzas being late. So he's a mildly inconveniencing supervillain, but he's not so bad. So Tejas is all the way at level one of the supervillain meter now, and we're going to start to rise him up from there. there there's... A pizza superhero genre? But is this a commercial thing? Or Yeah, yeah, look him up. Look up the Noid. He's cool. He looks kind of like Tejas. Whoa. 
Domino's is just, it's an amazing pizza. I don't know how they do it, man. They even do a gluten-free version. I mean. I live in New York City, and I still order Domino's all the time, and we have some pretty good pizza around here. Yeah, I love Domino's pizza. The Noid is a late 80s Domino's mascot. He's a supervillain, but as far as supervillains go, he's he's pretty mild, so. Thank you, Mike. You've been downgraded, Tages. You're not Thank that you. evil anymore. Thank you. I am not evil. I'm trying to help here. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back with our expert guest, Julie McNamara of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you so much for doing this. You bet. You bet. I'm excited to be here. Okay, everybody. Julie McNamara is a senior energy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Her research focuses on policies and measures that facilitate a rapid, sustained, and broadly beneficial transition of our nation's energy system. Ms. McNamara holds an MS in Technology and Policy from MIT and a BA in Biology and Political Economy from Williams College. She has been quoted widely, including in Reuters, Scientific American, NPR, The Associated Press, New York Times, and LA Times. Wow. Whoa. What are you doing on our podcast? <laughs> That's I a think good three question. makes it a trend, right? So you're official. Yeah. Thank you. We just hit our, our first 100 downloads. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Hey, that's triple digits. It yeah, is. Mm-hmm. We uh, didn't try to coordinate our outfits today, but I guess if you're a union of concerned scientists, we're kind of a coalition of useless idiots or something. Yeah, apathetic idiots. Something like that. <laughs> I think it works. It works. <laughs> I'm going to read a quote that you gave to the New York Times. Julie said, if we talk about infrastructure without considering how that infrastructure needs to match the climate conditions from today on into the future, then we're building something that won't stand a chance. So what did you mean by that, Julie? Sure. Well, you know, our critical infrastructure enables day-to-day life, right? It's also historically been built on the past, right? What we know of how how the world has worked, how the weather has has or has not wreaked havoc on these systems. Um, and when we consider what's coming our way, what's already here, we have infrastructure that's built for the past. It can't weather these impacts now. Um, and that leaves us uh, really unable and flat-footed in the face of, of these um, worsening disasters. And when you say worsening disasters, what are you referring to? Sure, that's severe weather, right? These increasingly extreme weather events. We've seen just this past year uh, wildfires across California and the West. Um, The Texas freeze showing the potential for um, wide temperature variations. Uh, We've seen floods. We've seen uh, one of the fastest hurricane intensifications that we've ever seen with Hurricane Ida. We saw record uh, precipitation events in New York City two weeks in a row, right? It's set the new record two weeks in a row. So we're seeing these events that just are without precedent. And we also know that it's not going to get better from here. These are only going to further intensify. And so we need to be prepared for that. we need to make sure that our infrastructure isn't built for, you know, the weather of the past uh, because we, we rely on it. And when it fails, it leaves us just at the risk and mercy of um, just a, a complete breakdown of how our, our society and systems are supposed to operate, right? From critical infrastructure, the water system, sewer, emergency responders, all of that. 
and the power grid. That's right, the power grid. And the power grid. So I read this report you did. Uh, it was called Lights Out. And it was about several areas of the U.S. that are vulnerable in their electrical systems. So the areas, you, correct me if I'm wrong, the areas you looked at were the Delaware Valley, southeastern Florida. Uh, uh -oh. Mike and I are from South Florida. And we know they're prone to mistakes in Florida. Let's just say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, a wild west out there. Yeah. We're both Florida men, so we... You know, that's that's our zone. Um, you also reviewed the Central Gulf Coast, southeastern Virginia, and the South Carolina Low Country. So, what did you find in these areas? Like, what what stands out in your mind about these reports that people might like to know about in their neighborhood? Yeah. So the first thing I can say is these are just the places we looked. Um, I think if you were to expand this, you'd see the same impacts perhaps to differing degrees, but this similar <laughs> impacts all across um, the coast. And, and we were looking at the potential for worsening storm surge and flooding um, along the coast. Of course, there are a range of climate impacts uh, that the grid's facing, um, but this was specifically considering these uh, power plants as well as um, these large substations. So these elements that are really important for keeping the grid up. And our look was, are these pieces of grid equipment, these power plants exposed to flooding? And there's a big difference between exposure and vulnerability. You can, right, it's, it's effectively, um, you could build a flood wall around something and it might be exposed to flooding, but it's not, it doesn't um, uh, succumb to the impacts of flooding, right? But what we know is that most utilities had not been considering these impacts. Now, these are pieces of infrastructure that are meant to last for 40, 50 plus years, power plants around for longer. So if you're citing them based on past knowledge, past data, then you're going to be facing the potential for um, these assets to be swamped in the future. Um, if you're not prepared for it. And I think we've seen that already. We've seen, right, with Hurricane Sandy, uh, all these places that in New York City were not expected to, to flood, um, these underground vaults, they've now undertaken efforts to um, waterproof equipment there, right? So it's much better, uh, right, These uh, using submersible equipment. We've also seen substations that are now raised up above flood levels. Um, but you can't, just lift a power plant. Um, and we're starting to see the consequences of that, of power plants, right, have especially fossil fuel based, which require on, require uh, water for their systems to cool and to for steam generators. Um, so they're based along the water. When these big storms come, they face major flood risks. Debris can get into intake pipes, right? How you bring water into the plant. Um, so we've seen plants have to shut down exactly when you would want the electricity grid to be at the ready. Um, so the, the range of risks, the range of consequences are severe. Even transmission lines, you know, uh, are extremely vulnerable to uh, changes in weather, especially when uh, with like the hurricanes and stuff and like a single transmission line down is good enough to bring the entire uh, power in the area down. So 
we are like super vulnerable when it comes to that as well. I know all about things getting clogged because I just had some debris in my computer charger and it took all of us 90 minutes to make sure my computer <laughs> could charge for this. So it did. We know about debris over here. Yep. I'm a mess. Hey, when you say um, we were looking at this, uh, who's the uh, who's the we involved in, in like a study or, or a uh, look in like that? Sure. So for this report, I was working with uh, climate colleagues who were assessing the I'm sorry, I'm getting very bad feedback or echo, but it gives me a chance to immediately reflect on on the regrets I have and what I'm sharing. (laughs) Maybe you can... She's funny, too. She is. There's so many regrets. I've met people from MIT. They're they're funny. MIT people are funny. Quick-witted. Yeah. I knew a game designer guy from MIT, hilarious guy. So, Do you find that when you were in MIT? Was everyone hilarious there? Uh, (laughs) Uh, maybe that's enough yeah maybe there's some dark humor in there but that's pretty much it we were uh, i think we were just talking about uh before the echo thing happened who 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 gets together and studies this type of information these uh threats to the specifically this report and then kind of also who's in the justice league like the union of concerned scientists i'm so curious about leagues and uh super teams so i'd love to know about like the makeup of your squad yeah, absolutely. So I think so. This report actually presents a pretty good microcosm of how we need to be um, looking at these issues moving forward, at least in part, because we coupled uh, a technical assessment of the power grid. Right, that's where I come in, um, along with uh, some additional energy colleagues. But then we also worked with climate scientists on staff to look at the actual um, flood risks and the increasing climate impacts. So no Superman, then? <laughs> Not yet, maybe. Or I, I don't know. I'd say that climate scientists are often doing heroic work. Absolutely. Um, the Union of Concerned Scientists puts rigorous, independent science to work to solve our planet's most pressing problems. Joining with citizens across the country, we combine technical analysis and effective advocacy to create innovative, practical solutions for a healthy, safe, and sustainable future. So is it it sounds like a money-making thing right (laughs) so selfish yeah that's right that's right that's what we're here for to get into some of these specifics that you found of these areas that you you said only these are only the areas that you look there's more concerning stuff going on in other places but in all these areas the delaware valley southeast florida the central gulf coast uh, southeast of virginia and the south carolina low country who is the most in trouble of those well, it varies in different in different ways. Some of these areas will start to see higher and higher uh, sea level rise. Some will just see far greater inland flooding. Right in Florida, it's quite flat, and you also can't build sea walls, right? Because the water's coming up from the ground. You can't just wall it off. Um, so that's a different change compared to other areas where you can, you know, it's it's not the but rising of the waters right to 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 come in you can actually take action to raise equipment um it just looks different but okay so we have these different areas we just saw one of these was in the gulf we just saw what happened with hurricane Ida last week now a lot of the areas we looked at in that report were actually falling behind the levees which have been built up um right to to be more protective over the last few years 
So that is one major area of defense, but then we can look at the, what happened to the infrastructure that was outside the levied areas. And we know we're not gonna build a levy around the whole country. Um, and so looking at the options ahead of us, we, I guess the, the key finding from this report is that climate impacts are here and there's something we have to deal with. We cannot build these pieces of infrastructure that are critical to the functioning of the electricity system without considering the impacts that are coming. And you know, when we think about the electricity system, it's not just are the lights on, it underpins everything in our daily lives, um, both at the home from refrigerated goods to keeping medicines safe to staying warm in the cold or cool in the heat. Um, but it's also our critical services, our emergency responders. Um, if you're looking to go out and buy something, uh, the ATMs, the credit card machines, being able to pump gas, um, our water systems, our sewage systems. When the power goes out, you start to see a rash of disasters separate and apart from whatever precipitated that outage. And so making sure that our electricity system is resilient is critically important. And so that's really where that report left off, right? We say, okay, we need to take a look at this and we can't ignore it. We also know that the power grid is going to fail. And so we also need to be making sure that people are equipped with electricity resilience options themselves, things like solar on homes, batteries for backup power, and then saying, okay, we can't get everybody at the outset, but we can at least start with little islands of resilient power um, to make sure that people in fact do have a place to go if the power goes out to stay cool, to stay warm. Um, and that's just critically important. We can't just think about the big system, right? We also have to think about people. So let me just repeat that for our audience again. Uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists is saying they know, they know the power is going to go out in places because of what's happening in the weather. We, we know that's going to happen. It's not like maybe it's going to happen. We know the weather's getting worse. So... Is the Union of Concerned Scientists a political group? No, we are nonpartisan. Are you funded by corporations? We are not. We don't take government or corporate funding. You're just some concerned scientists. <laughs> so yeah. if, if they're concerned, we should be concerned. Because this isn't a... She didn't say projected maybe. She said we know. So, okay, so you're not a government group, and yet you uh, write a lot about policy. You're, you're very active in, like, how can we fix these problems on a policy level? So how did you get involved in that? Were you ever working in government? Have you ever been part of something like that? I think one of the challenges we face is that our regulations are, we're having to shoehorn solutions into regulations and um you know, the statutory obligations that were set uh, quite some time ago and, and that we've been really struggling to advance change at the congressional level, right, to pass policies that match the challenges we're faced with. And, and so I found myself motivated 
wanting to try to help move the ball there. Um, and it's an uphill climb, um, a little demoralizing on the daily, but it's also the potential for better, right? And, and, and we know that we can do better. We know that the public wants to address these issues, right? To, to really reckon with these things. Um, and so it's just trying to keep pushing for change. And right now we're actually in this incredible policy moment where we're facing the potential for policy action at a level that has never been seen for climate change in this country. So that's a, that's heartening. It's a good time for that because uh, we're fucked, right? So we need to get on this quick. You know, I know how bad it is to have power out because I had my grandparents staying with me during a hurricane once and the power went out. And we all went insane, like in The Shining. So yeah, it's it's rough. Yeah, I went to his house when the when the power was out, because uh, we we were from Florida, so we would have the power go off for like weeks at a time. For hurricanes, and it's so yeah. hot there, and you just go insane. And then one time he had his power on, and I didn't. I was able to just go over there and play video games in the AC after like a week of just dying. <laughs> because my way. father had alternate sources of power. He had a solar panel, and he was able to get power that way. So he was ahead of the a shining game. example. Yeah. Yeah, and in and in my country, like there's like so many places where people still don't have power, you know. So, like the whole system, like we would move to the dark ages if you don't have power. Like, yeah. power is everything. It runs, as she said, it runs everything in our society. We can't live without it. We found in our research for this episode that one in three people on the planet do not have access to power. It is staggering. And here's the thing. We know how to bring power to people today, right? Solar panels have gotten so cheap that this provides a, a new way of access to electricity in ways we just haven't seen previously. It's so powerful and it should be unacceptable that, that we don't have universal access to electricity. Even in our country, we don't have universal access to electricity. And not just right there, the people who don't have access at all. Um, and then there are those who can't afford the bills just because of the, the energy burden, right? The, the share of your energy bill as a, as a proportion of your income, um, making you have to make impossible choices as to whether you heat your home or you pay your rent, right? So we need to make sure that electricity is accessible, um, and affordable because it should be considered a human right. You know, when I speak to people who are not fans of climate change, do not believe that we need to do something about it, um, I find that there's a lot of distrust that people think somebody's going to make money off this. Somebody's going to make money off this inconvenience for me, and I don't believe it. So how can we, how can we get to those people and, and say like, no, you know, you're not here. This, this isn't a commercial thing. You're like taking your Saturday when you're very busy and you're just trying to help get the word out about this is your whole job. How, how can we get that across to people that it's not a, it's not a greed thing or it's not a deception thing? Yeah, well, it sounds like we at least have one point of agreement and that I'm not a fan of climate change either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's challenging. I, I think that this year has been a real eye-opener for a lot of people just about the impacts of climate change, that, that we're seeing things that we just haven't seen before. And this comes up 
across the country from people either exposed to hurricanes that that you know they've said they've ridden these storms out for decades and never seen anything like this. We're also seeing though, right like in the Midwest, some of the weather patterns changing. Um, planting seasons, changing yields, uh, people being able to say, at least, I've never seen this before. It's different. Um, the wildfires just presenting jaw-dropping air quality impacts and uh, taking power out, right? Just all these things that we can't ignore. But then there's the question of what do we do with it? Because I think actually there are more people coming around to the idea that we have to deal with its impacts and still questioning, how do we reckon with it? The thing that gets me is that there is so much benefit to be gotten from shifting from fossil fuels to clean energy. Um, we focus so much on carbon, on can we lower carbon? Can we get to these targets to, right, to keep global warming in check? And so often it's a footnote. It's difficult to relate to it. It's difficult to relate to, oh, carbon, I'm, like, I breathe that out. Like, what's yeah. the big deal, you know? Like, That's right. Yeah, well, everything all, on the planet is carbon, you know? Yeah, it gives us life, yeah. um, which I've had thrown back in my face before. Um, but also at the same time, like what you said about fossil fuels, as I'm finding out now, these these fossil fuels are only 30 to 35 percent working like they're they're only 30 to 35 percent efficient so it's like 60 to 70 percent that just goes up into the air so it's like you're spending all this money and you're only getting a small portion of it and the majority of it is going towards destroying our planet yeah it's not a great equation for us um and then we have the public health impacts which are staggering really want to hear about that yeah so i mean just generally <laughs> It's been calculated that the public health benefits from transitioning away from fossil fuels would far outweigh any cost of the transition itself. Of course, those cost considerations typically fail to address the fact that if we don't act, we sure can't afford that. But just the cost of action is so outweighed on public health alone. Um, from the particulate matter that's released when we combust fossil fuels, the NOx emissions, right? So how we have soot and smog leading to millions and millions and millions of people in this country um, living in areas with unhealthy air. We can do better than that. We know how to do better than that, right? We make the power grid clean. We swap out all of these things that run on fossil fuels to electricity. And we drive down air pollution across the country. It's such a winning formula. It, does and it cost more? Does it cost more to switch your power to something clean? No. And that's the thing. Renewables have come down so much in cost in the last few years that it is now cheaper in the overwhelming majority of the country to build, to build wind, to build solar, um, as opposed to building new fossil fuels, right? New gas plants. Wow, and that's so then when we put surprise. those on the system, it drives down the price, right? Because as soon as you build it, every megawatt hour that comes out of it is free, right? You're just capturing the sun and there it goes. So once it's up, it's running. Right. The initial cost of the investment is high, but the long-term cost of, of renewable energy is significantly lower. Um, it's a, it's a 
very straightforward equation for that. We can all have a role in generating electricity now. You can put solar on your roof or you can participate in a community share of solar in a way that we could never, right? I can't have a coal plant in my backyard. Um, but this lets me be more independent from the system. And I think that's a really interesting uh, entry point for a lot of people who are inclined toward less less government mm-hmm. um yeah. less intrusion anybody on, the, on the right anybody a little more conservative who want, wants less government wants less you know government messing with them you can be more independent that's right and one of the things that's standing in the way of that is utilities um, a lot of these utilities traditionally have made their money by building out these large power plants they make the money off the building it. that's right they get a return on the investment Um, No, there are different parts of the country where we have restructured electricity markets. So your utility is only providing you with the electricity. They're not also generating the electricity. That's a separate market. But a lot of people in the country are still in what we call, or or still uh, customers of vertically integrated utilities where they're building the power plants, they're sending it down the wires, and they're selling it to you. Um, And they get a rate of return on building power plants. and sort of like Apple with the, like, they make this phone that'll just slide off everywhere. And they, so much of the profit comes from these cases where they make like 3000% profit for this little piece of plastic. Ben so, has a very broken phone and he's pretty bitter about it. I'm, Don't let it get you I'm down. I'm not happy. I just got it fixed and then I smashed it again right away. In, I even had the case on it and the, the top broke off and I, I pulled it out of my pocket and it just zoosh, flew across the room and just cracked all over. He's a simple, simple man. I didn't go to MIT, okay? <laughs> Yeah, you got in, but you you just decided not to go, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they were trying to get me to go, but I I refused. About solar, you were talking about capturing the sun, and that just sounds incredibly evil. He's oh, and uh, I just want to know about you know your supervillain status. We have a resident supervillain over here. So, what's your plan for world domination? Does it make you? What was that thing? Now, you were be saying? honest. What were you saying? That thing you're saying, Ben, about like does it make you hate humanity or something? Yeah, is it possible? to be a scientist and understand everything that's happening with the planet and not be anti-humanity? I mean, I have to say yes, but maybe that's the difference between me and somebody who has a PhD. I'm just not far enough along on the journey, you know? Um, (laughs) Yeah, you have to believe in people and you have to believe in the benefit and the potential for change. Um, Here's the thing. We're not here because of individuals. We're here because of bigger systemic problems. Corporations who have entrenched interests and business models built on keeping the system as it was. So all of us have the opportunity to help address climate change, but it's sure not on us to get the job done. This is something that has to happen at the at the broader system level. Um, and it is it has long been the interest of fossil fuel companies to tell people that it's on them, right? That you have an opportunity to swap out your light bulbs, to to turn off the lights. Um, That's important. That does matter. Making our homes more efficient does matter. But that's not it. That's not the game. The game is moving at a major level away from fossil fuels. And that's not something that each of us can change on our own, with the exception of voting. Yeah, the policy has to change across the world, not only just America, even if the US like came out of like it, like all the policymakers came together, we are still fucked 
the whole world has to come together you know all policy makers need to change their policies for us to like reduce the amount of carbon that we keep emitting yeah tay just told me in preparation for this that we really can't afford to put any more carbon emissions into the atmosphere and yet we're still using 85% fossil fuels so it's like we're using a fuel that puts out 70%, you know, it's only effective 30%, the other 70% goes straight into poison in the atmosphere, and we can't afford to have any more, and yet we're choosing a fuel that mostly go, the dollars that we pay mostly go towards pollution and not propulsion or electricity. Yeah, it should make you incensed. We have the technologies today that we need to just embark at full sprint to take climate action, right? We have the solar panels, we have the wind turbines, we have heat pumps that we can swap out furnaces and air conditioners and homes um, can for you water tell me, heaters. Can you please tell me about the heat pumps? What are they? How do they work? How do I get one? Uh, well, I have to say they're a little bit magic. They take advantage of the, the outside environment to be more efficient. Effectively, a heat pump is an air conditioner that can just work both directions. Um, you can also think of your refrigerator. Your taking the heat, say say you want to, to heat your home, you're taking the heat from the outside and you're bringing it in. You're trying to cool your home, you're taking the heat from the outside, the inside and you're bringing it out. And because the energy is from the broader system, right, from the environment, you're actually able to be more efficient as a whole. But mostly, yeah, just think of it as an air conditioner running both directions. That's so cool. Are they are they expensive? Are they more expensive than an air conditioning? Is the energy usage similar? So they have been historically more expensive, but they come they've come down a lot in cost over the last few years. Um, they've also been seeing these impressive technology gains to be able to work in very cold climates, which is something that they had long struggled with, right? But even in very cold climates, they're starting to see very high efficiencies still. Um, but it's actually only a small shift in the technology, as I understand it, to be able to have something work in both directions. No, that's true. It's very what do small. We need? we need regulations. Yeah, we they have to like just the policymakers need to come in and, and be like, no more uh, gas furnaces whatsoever, only heat pumps, you know, no more sing single air conditioning, only heat pumps. They should just completely stop production of that. But the policymakers have to do that everywhere, like all over the world, right? Right, right. I mean, we have to start somewhere. And the economics also play in. So now once yeah. you, the technology like is used more and more, more and more people realize that, hey, like this is much better, much more efficient. As, and as the technology cost comes down, it becomes more affordable in the countries that cannot afford it. So, so it's kind of very, very important to start somewhere. You know, in, right. in, in our emails, in our correspondence, and as I was looking at your work, I was like, okay, she works a lot in policy. I want to keep this shifted away from politics because we want to invite everybody from every side of the spectrum just to know about objective facts about what's happening that involves our health and our the health of the planet. But the more you talk, the more I do want to talk politics and say, like, we need to get this done. Like, there's no other way around it. The politics to protect us, we can't really avoid it. That's right. And, you know, just on that point, one thing that's great about heat pumps is that we've often talked about them replacing home heating systems, furnaces for either running on propane, gas, fuel oil in the Northeast. Um, but they also provide cooling 
And we're seeing more and more parts of the country that had long not needed air conditioners being exposed to heat waves that are a major public health threat, right? That are very damaging to human human health and require intervening with air conditioners. And so a heat pump doesn't just uh, clean up our heating system. It also brings access to cooling for people who increasingly need it. So that's a that's an, a really important point um, that is often left out of the heat pump conversation. Yeah, we're New Yorkers over here, and we all, most of our apartments have that furnace from 1920 that gives us heat that's really yeah. loud, sounds like a ghost yeah. screaming or something. <laughs> and also, we have to buy those window units and stick them in our windows, and man, they drip yeah. all over my crops and my garden. I freaking hate it. So something Your that crops. does both just <laughs> makes sense. Like It just makes yeah. a ton of sense to not use something from 1920 and have to buy a second thing. If one thing does both, I mean... And it's well, also but... just electric powered. So in a renewable energy future, like you don't need gas. This machine would do it both for you, you know? But it does smell really good. The gas. Yeah, I'm just saying. <laughs> I like the gas smell too. Um, back to these record heat and cold waves. I saw your article about Texas saying that their power is going out in both cold and in heat. And we know that as the planet warms up, the water changes where it is. Things get hotter and colder. Texas is a big, like, hands-off government state. What, what are some things Texans need to know that, that are coming their way? Yeah, Texas is an interesting case about when the government does and doesn't want to intervene in the name of not intervening. I think Texans had a quite clear view of the consequences of being unprepared this past winter. They've also this summer been faced and questioned whether the grid would make it through some of these heat waves. So I think what it really has brought to bear, the electricity grid is critical to life to daily living, but just also survival. Um, and we need to reckon with that. And the Texas grid is really interesting in that it it's this deregulated system that is really focused on free market principles, except of course it's not a free market. There are all these different ways that the market is manipulated. Um, and the one thing that was super clear this past winter was that it wasn't people who were being thought of or designed for in that system. It was companies, right? And people were the one who have to pay the price for a grid that failed and that was not designed to put access to reliable electricity first. Yeah, and it's ironic because Texas has so much solar power. Their solar uh, input is insane. Like most of the Texan land has like incredible amounts of solar power. And like they, if they wanted, like they could have just solar to power their whole economy, you know. Would that be less vulnerable if they were to switch to renewables? Would their power grid be less vulnerable? Well, you know, you still need to have the power system be prepared for the weather that it's going to face, whether it's climate or not, right? The climate impacts are not. It needs to be a resilient system. But we do know that one benefit of renewables is that they're pretty distributed. And so you don't run the risk of one major power plant going out and taking out the whole system. That's um, interesting. You're going to you have more resiliency through that redundancy, right? Through the distributed nature. But we also need to make sure that renewables are prepared for, for weather too, right? Uh, they need to be designed for the wind that they might be facing from hurricanes, that their equipment is elevated for flood levels, just the basic grid equipment. So 
all of our infrastructure needs to plan for it. But one thing that renewables can do is that they can be local too. Um, you can have that solar on your roof or at your community center. So even again, if that broader grid does go down, you still have access during those times. So what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're seeing obvious vulnerabilities where we really need to fix these utilities anyway. We need to build new stuff anyway. Might as well build it in a way that's renewable, that's cheaper, that's less dangerous, that's more distributed. Might as well, if, if we have to fix the problem, might as well fix it in a renewable way, right? That's exactly it. And that's one of the things that's actually pretty heartening about this moment. We know we need to transition away from fossil fuels. We know we need to go to a cleaner system. That's going to require changes to our infrastructure. Our infrastructure has also been chronically underinvested in, and it's ill-prepared for climate impacts. As we transition it to clean, let's make sure that it's also resilient to climate impacts too. We can do these things at the same time, but we won't do it if we're not planning for climate impacts. That should just be a baseline requirement. And especially after disaster strikes, the focus is on immediately rebuilding and restoring power, which makes sense, right? It, we need to get the power back. But if you don't already have a plan in place for how to build it back better that next time, right, that next storm, how to take it, right, to, to improve the systems as you build them back, then you'll have missed this new chance, this next chance to make sure that your infrastructure is prepared. Yeah, no more bandit solutions. You got to, like, fix the problem from the root cause itself. Uh, where I lived in Colorado, uh, in in this town called Fort Collins, uh, they actually had all their uh, power infrastructure underground. So it was not subject to any kind of weather implications. It was obviously more expensive, but you don't see any of the power lines in that town. It looks beautiful. Um, and like... There, there were no power shortages or no power cuts because like in like extreme weather and like windy weather where it's mountainous, you know. So that was a proper solution. You know, they planned it right. They planned like 100 years into the future. They were like, okay, we'll make sure we'll put some more money in right now. But the resiliency of the grid would keep the costs actually cheaper. It is so much more expensive to go fix stuff than like actually have something that lasts forever, you know. Like like PG&E in California, they've been blamed for a lot of the wildfires because their sparky technology that was not really prepared for this weather. Uh, and now they got just crazy, crazy lawsuits. So it's not good for the utility companies even because they're going to be liable. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is an important example because at the very least, everything new we do should be prepared for climate impacts. It's a concerning time. But the one thing that brings me back day on day is this belief that we can, in fact, make change, that we can shift the system. And I mean this as a nation, as a world, not as an organization, that we can get this done. I, I truly do believe that. And I'm here to fight all the entrenched interests that are trying to slow it down because we have the technologies, we have the will, we have some hurdles in the way. We got to clear those and we can get the job done. Everybody, that's Julie McNamara. Julie, get out of here. Keep saving the world. Thank you for taking some of your time with us. Um, thank you for giving us this information. This has been really, really fascinating. It's just yeah. been great talking to you. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Of I course. appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you.
Thanks for listening, everybody. That's our episode three. And also special thank you to Mike's wife, Sam, and my second cousin, Caden, and his mom and dad, Tim and Ashley, my cousins, for joining us in our little skit. Really appreciate you guys. I think you performed just perfectly. And special thanks to our expert guest, Julie McNamara, Senior Energy Analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She's concerned, and you should maybe be too.